The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 353. My name is Chris, and no, you're not all confused. This is a special retro edition of the Linux Action Show. We're on a lean crew this week as we are all down at scale, getting awesome coverage for you guys. So next week's episode of Linux Action Show, episode 354, should be covered with on-location stuff, interviews, and all kinds of things from scale. We're really going to go all out in that episode and bring you some of the best coverage anywhere. So 354 is one to tune in for scale this week. While we prepare for that, we're going to take a look back at some of your most popular submitted stories. A little while ago, we asked for our best of submissions, and we got tons. And there was some we just didn't have a chance to fit in. But now, now we have that chance as we're down at scale. So that's what we're going to do today. And I'm looking forward to it. All of classics runs Linuxes and all of those things uh, throughout the episode. So before we get into that, I'll do a quick mention for our first sponsor this week, and that's DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than a minute, and pricing plans start only $5 per month. And that's going to get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one terabyte of transfer, and a CPU dedicated to you. You think about when they say they're dedicated to the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server, uh, nothing drives that home than when you go over and look at their control panel. Their interface is so simple and so intuitive. Empower users can replicate the control panel on a larger scale with DigitalOcean straightforward API. And there's already a ton of great apps and projects and ways you can just snap this into tons of popular open source projects already because people are just taking advantage of that API. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And they're beautiful. Go check out DigitalOcean, but use our promo code LAST Digital. When you use the promo code LAST Digital, L A S Digital, all one word, lowercase, that's going to give you a $10 credit. So try out the $5 rig. Everything's built on top of Linux. They're using super badass hardware connected to tier one bandwidth and SSDs throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's a really, really great experience. Go over to DigitalOcean, try it out for two months for free. LAST Digital. I use it for own cloud, I use it for BitTorrent Sync. I. We use it for, I mean, just really as a place to run Ruby scripts and down to our video conferencing that we use to do remote video capture is all now powered by Linux at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean.com. Go try out some of their one-click deployments too. Maybe get, an op, get a little opportunity to play with CoreOS. I think it's a pretty exciting development and they've got a great, great relationship with the CoreOS project. So it's a good place to go spend some time because you know you're going to get good, solid updates and support from that project. DigitalOcean.com last digital to get that $10 credit try out the $5 rig two months for free. And a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. All right, without further ado, let's spin up the Retro Blaster and go back in time. But before we get to all that, it is Art Picks. And I have a personal one that uh, I spotted this week. <laughs> And it was so exciting. I mean, really, seriously. Yes. Like, how often do you do, does Chris come with his own runs Linux right? that he spotted in the wild? You know why? Ah. As I never leave the studio, so it's like everybody knows what, what we He's on Linux. Drones. So this week was the Evergreen State Fair here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and when we're walking up to the admission booth to buy tickets hmm. to the Evergreen State Fair here in Monroe, Washington. Matt, what do you see up on that admission price screen right there? Oh Look at God. that. That looks like Unity. Look at that. There's, That's funny. Now, uh, this here is hmm. Chase got this picture. I didn't. I wasn't able to score this picture. They did later install yeah. their updates. Oh, did they really? Uh, so <laughs> the, uh, yeah, not good to advertise that. <laughs> the display booths at uh, the at our local okay. state fair that's awesome run linux and oh. uh, we had a great we went out and then we, awesome. we had a great time because we know we are here amongst friends 
at the Evergreen State Right. Fair. You felt good about it. Yeah. It was a good it. fair. And knowing that uh, our tickets and our transactions were being dealt on Linux and not Windows XP, which it has been in years past, oh boy. I think they made the change because of the end-of-life XP. Could be. Which is good. Now, the only thing that same day, I did go to my son's new school, and yeah. they're running XP there. Yeah. Schools are kind of a, I don't know. They're tough, tough bag. I know. I used to work for them. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. You have better insights than there. There's a better. There's a better Linux alternative out there. It's called mm-hmm. Linux. That's right. And it's better. It's better than Windows. It's Linux. And it's Linux. Yeah. yeah. One. Our first runs Linux submitted by the audience comes from Colonel Linux, aka Noah. You guys know him oh, from yeah. our Fest coverage. He sent in a radio station that his company helped set up that runs Linux. Now here's what we're gonna do because this is kind of a long piece. Uh, we're gonna play the first little bit to tease you guys what this is, and then we'll play the rest of the video because he tours the entire radio station, oh, very nice shows you where all the Linux. Is. Oh yeah, isn't this great it's video? A gr- I was just yeah. blown away. So it, it's definitely worth watching if you're just like interested in how Linux could power an entire radio station. So I'll show you the teaser part so you get an idea and then we'll play the rest in the feedback. Noah, take it away. Hi, it's Noah or Colonel Linux in the chat room. Some of you may recognize me from some of the interviews I've done for Jupiter Broadcasting and this is my runs Linux. My dad has devoted his life to making healthy food that actually tastes good. The project started when a local nonprofit group contacted him asking him to be part of a local FM radio station they wanted to launch. After coming on board with them, they began to plan out the technical details of putting the radio station on the air. My dad suggested to the group that Altaspeed, my company, might be able to help. After we got involved, we sat down and got a general idea of what they wanted to accomplish. The goal was to put a radio station on the air be able to take remote broadcasts, have multiple people control or edit the station's content. All of this had to be reliable and, of course, had to stay within the budget. All right, so we'll play the rest because he gives in. He goes into full detail about how where they use Linux at mm-hmm. each part, from like literally to the feed that goes on the intent to the, to the, in, to the broadcast antenna to people's desk. It's really cool. It's it's amazing. It's amazing how deep it really goes. And how how awesome was it of mm-hmm. Noah to send that in too? That was great. Like uh, super cool. And this week our runs Linux is this Raspberry Pi controlled aquaponics. Is that how you say it? aquaponics? Uh, this isn't uh, uh, one of the new businesses that cropped up in Washington recently. Well, right? you can use. Uh, no, that's uh, that's. <laughs> something else but okay, okay this is actually more for food uh, oh that would be fantastic um yeah especially aqua, like a, i think it's oh here you go aquaponics yep right there ah. it's a food production system that combines conventional aquaculture like raising oh, aquatic animals awesome. such as snails fish crayfish or prawns in tanks with hydroponics which is what you're thinking of for the uh, right. crop there yeah, for other things uh you know which is cultivating plants and mm-hmm. water in a symbiotic environment in a normal a aquaculture Excretions from animals being raised can accumulate in the water, increasing toxicity. In an aquaphonic system, water from aquaculture systems is fed into hydrophonic systems where the uh, byproducts are then broken down by nitrogen-eating bacteria, which turns it into nitrates and, and et cetera, which then the plants eat. Oh, that's fantastic. So because the bacteria, the, uh, so the, the animals poop, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. things break down the poop into nitrates uh, and nitrites, and then the plants eat that, and Bob's your uncle... You've got really fast-growing plants, 
uh, and a self-sustaining system. However, you have to manage the water, you have to manage all of the things underneath right. it, the drainage, all of this stuff to make it work. So they have built a system that's, that runs around a Raspberry Pi controlling the pump, the drain, and the temperature probes for the water, and also air temperature sensors. It relays timing and is controlled with a Python script. Nice. Temperatures and control data are, con- are collected every minute and sent to uh, plot.ly for graphing, and future expansion will include sensors for water level and pH values, uh, just for like an additional upgrade cost later on. And all of the scripts are available on GitHub, too. You know what they need to do at community colleges? They need more pie-related stuff like this, because I think that'd be cool. Yeah, so... That's awesome. Now, okay, this is early days, but you see, it looks like it's about the size of a hot tub, right? Right, you could do this in your backyard. Exactly. So think of, like, we're going to talk about internet apocalypse. We'll just think about, like, just... Be able to have more self-sustained food growing in your backyard exactly. in something that takes the space of a hot tub that uh, is powered and controlled by a Raspberry Pi mm-hmm. and Python. <laughs> and actually knowing what's going in your body from you know from point A to point B. That's true, too. Yeah, so here he is. He's running the Python script. Annoying. He's telling it what to pump to run and for how long, uh, where to hold and which grow bed, and uh, how many cycles to wait for and how many cycles total. And there he goes. He just kicked off the pump with a Python script. That's so awesome. And then you can see over here it starts pumping the water into the bed. There it goes. Oh, my God. Isn't that cool? So now Dude. now it's running. I wish this was local. We could go check it out. I know, really? This does seem like something that would happen in Washington, though. It really does, yeah. This seems like a Washington initiative. And there you can see there's the water drainage well, going the down farmers the markets and stuff, right? I mean, just all the food exchanges. How cool is that? That is so awesome. I yeah. mean, it's not just practical, but it's it's also really, really awesome. And so uh, everything that uh, he's done to make that work is available uh, up on his GitHub page. And uh, we have the uh, links in the show notes if you guys want to read yeah. about it and check it out. If you've got something you want to automate. I was looking at it, too, and I was thinking you could use this, too, to also automate a cool fish tank setup. Because yes. some of this stuff applies to managing a large saltwater fish tank. You know, monitoring the temperatures, the pH level, the waters, the bacteria, all that stuff. I wonder if people had, like, swimming pools. You could do something similar. It's like, okay, I need to drain the pool. I need to, you know, uh, text message the pool cleaner guy. Uh, You know, whatever, right? Barry in our live chat room (laughs) says, hey, this is open source food. It is, actually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is because they're uh, cultivating the whole package. That's pretty cool. Uh, But first, Matt, as always, it is our picks this week. And we got to start with something that is kind of amazing. We talk about a lot of things that run on Linux. Sure. Uh, and some of the most important ones to me are the ones that actually change lives. And uh, that's what Philip S. wrote in. He sent in the connected wheelchair pro- wheelchair project that runs Linux. He says, hey, guys, I found this over on Hard OCP's website. Intel is working with Linux to design a custom wheelchair. This is kind of amazing. And uh, it's narrated by Stephen Hawking. And I just wanted to oh, play wow. a little bit so we could see uh, how Linux systems can be utilized in both directly and indirectly right. to actually change people's lives. And if you watch, you'll see Linux just being used to make this happen. It's really amazing. If you don't recognize my voice, my name is Stephen Hawking. I am the guy who made Black Hole School. I am here to talk about a topic very personal to me. How science and technology can help people with disabilities. I've lived my life on the edge, pushing the boundaries of not just science, but what my body can do. Medicine can't cure me, so I rely on technology. It lets me interface with the world, it propels me, it is how I'm speaking to you now. It is necessary for me to live. I'm Intel inside myself. In the Connected Wheelchair Project, a team of Intel interns and employees from the Internet of Things group 
have built a sensor suite on the Intel Galileo oh, board machines. Oh, and man. created an app More to Linux? seamlessly interact and analyze the information. A wheelchair user can Android. monitor important information about their health, the status of their wheelchair, and the accessibility of the places they visit, significantly improving their day-to-day -day life. This is a great example of how technology for the disabled is often a proving ground for the technology of the future. These technological achievements are due to the innovations and creative forces of developers like you. I challenge you all here to excel to bring about the changes you want in the world. It's pretty incredible to see uh, them utilize just uh, various open source tools, put them together, and build something like this. And uh, and have Stephen Hawking involved, and yeah. obviously Intel's involved. It, it's it's really incredible, and they, they have more information. We'll have linked in the show notes about what these connected wheelchairs can do, and it's incredible. the data you can get out of these things, and uh, giving them some instructions and the uh, connected nature of it, all of it, and even working with mesh networking. It's, I know it's, it's like it's like a, I see it as a launch pad to a number of amazing projects. Yeah, it's really cool, and uh, it's great to see that Linux not only being used on the actual machinery, but Linux being used by the developers that are working mm -hmm. on the software for it too. You saw a lot. Of Unity Great. desktops in that video. The future of desktop computing runs Linux. Everybody's seen this video this week. I had to do it though. I had to because I, I think literally 30 people emailed this in. as like, Chris, you got to oh make God, this that runs Linux. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Like, I went to go do the feedback for this episode. And it, was, it was all it's this like, video. It's like they're trying to tell me something. Yeah, and it also made it to the subreddit too. So if, you, but just in case you didn't get to see it, or for posterity's sake. Here, sake. Here is the future of desktop computing, and if you you're, at first you're like, oh, okay, this is a guy with a computer, um, and uh, he's got maybe like a glass desk here. But what you will find is this is a prototype that demonstrates something brand new that builds upon centuries-old ideas of working with paper on your desk, and it uses Linux. Uh, have Windows side by side, and you switch between uh, uh, Windows between applications, which is always kind of a mental switch also, a mental context switch. Um, and so we thought of how, how would it be to, um, if the whole table would be just a digital workspace Look at where that. you can work with what? your familiar applications the whole like table's a touch screen. with paper. Spreading paper on your desk for reading, like for a, writing, and I think for that's doing Chromium whatever, he's doing there. and just like do that surface. with your uh, computer programs. And that's... Uh, a prototype of that we can just use Google Earth. virtually any application oh like Google Earth and the screens are very high resolution and they are capable Look of, at that. Uh, of touch and multi-touch and so oh. I can use my Google Earth in, in a familiar way but just if it was a piece of paper on my table so I can use a web browser and just work with the web browser in, in the same way whatever now, application you are used there's to Libre Office. you can use with this system, but it would appear that they're maybe using a special uh, a window manager or something. It, it draws an extra border around each window. But other than that, I, it almost looks like the XFCE desktop. It does. That would make sense to me. And that's a much more natural way uh, to work with a computer, but without 
forcing people to learn a completely new paradigm of working because the, the programs themselves can be still just uh, those the users are familiar with. So we're just adding something to the familiar this way. This always hmm. seemed like the obvious way that um, uh, the surface, the mic not the tablet surface, but the original right. big old table surface would have gone from Microsoft, right? You, you put that thing in here, you connect it to a metro interface, you could have your desk be the metro interface, the desktop screen's actually you're really getting work done, right? Like he's doing here, he's got his regular desktop screen, you can see he's got a dock right there with his regular Linux apps, he's got the keyboard and mouse off to the side for, for sure. the demonstration here, and then he's able just to drag Windows down onto his table there. To me, it's like it's one part amazing and one part like, well, yeah, that seems like something we should do. <laughs> you know, it's it strikes me as like I could see it for some applications, but being more difficult for others. I see it being awesome for people that have yeah. never used a computer before and they don't have any interest in a mouse or table. But I think well, for, it's kind of like the command line I'm versus GUI. Like, I'm thinking you know? like here though, right? Like I could have these these That's this true. piece of paper and you're like, like right here, and I could just be flipping through it. True, true. Um, I would it, like to see it a step notch higher it, and see it like three dimensional. I mean, well, that would be really cool. Be yeah, cool. you could tie it with like an Oculus VR or something. That's what I'm saying. But what I'm thinking this too is like you'd have to have something that's flexible enough that you could have stuff covering up your table when you're using this because you know right. you don't you don't like want the computer expecting this part of the UI to be visible to you when you've got like your laptop on the table or something because let's be honest whose desk is 100% clear all the time like if that they had a, <laughs> if they had a glass desk like this that was adaptive it says oh hey you've put a coffee mug yeah. over something right. they'd actually adjust like the to surface that? could like that was one of the things Mike yeah, but I wonder like if it whatever you want to do with it so you can just vision it's also right. you can move it around so you can do it yourself yeah worst case yeah scrolling would be and I suppose if you had your window manager always place the windows in the same place on the table you just know don't put your drink there because that's right. where the, that's where your chat like that's wouldn't it be cool to have like the IRC embedded right there in the table that well, and like really when neat. you set a can of beer down, it actually it sends everybody in the IRC a can of beer. <laughs> right, yeah. Boop, it, at least a picture of a one. A picture one, yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I bought you a beer. So there you go. That's the desktop of the future. And uh, what's so cool about it is they're developing that under Linux. So uh, right, I play with it. Right out of the gate, yeah. Linux totally. is a first-class citizen. I think that's really, really neat. And today's Run Linux. Got a question. Is Formula One. And it came in from viewer Ronald. Now, Matt, you remember we talked about Formula One using Linux inside some of the cars. Yes. And I, if you go back far enough, I remember uh, some Linux being on the outside of a car. So we have here, viewer Ronald sends in, he says, I don't know how popular F1 is in the U.S. Not not super popular. I never, I, no. that's a key, right? I yeah. No, no, it's, it's actually an <laughs> awesome race that like tons of, it looks ah, really awesome. Yeah. Anyways. He was watching the Japanese Grand Prix, and he noticed that the weatherman was using a Unity desktop displaying the forecast of the race. He's guessing it was 1204. He says, love the, love the show. Now, here's what's awesome about this runs Linux. We had our global network of coverage of the Linux Action Show audience okay. members. So some folks sent in the fact that they saw this. Right. Other folks actually submitted a video of it in action. So we've got it oh, right nice. here. If you watch closely, this might get us pulled off YouTube. Uh, but it's on YouTube. Yeah, so low if it does, sound, that's quick ridiculous. Shot, you know. Yeah. So here, I just want you to see it. It's I, this. The problem is the duration might be too long, but it's totes worth it. Screw YouTube if we get pulled off. All right. He is down with the FIA. Okay, watch closely. Andy Swan, great name. Let's hear what he's got to say. Well, of course, since we got to Suzuka, all talk has been about the typhoon. The now super. Can you see our laptop Andy, there? What mm -hmm. can you tell mm -hmm. us? Uh, well, the typhoon. Okay, now the watch as they zoom in on the laptop here. Okay. There'll be no question on about it. On the left. Okay. 
This is the Formula uh, F1 one whatever guy that does the weather. What matters is oh, right yeah, there. Oh, yeah, there's some boom, unity. Boom, totes unity. Uh, I agree. I think it's 1204 because uh, you'll notice no Amazon search, but all the other default icons yes. are in the dock, and it's the old software center icon. But look at that right there. So apparently the F1 folks using Linux on the at the diagnostic area for the cars when they're mm-hmm. working on the cars they're using Linux inside the cars. Looks like 11.0. Yeah. And now they're using now they're using they're using it even uh, for checking the weather. That's cool. Nice. These are my favorite runs Linux too, where you just see like you just notice, hey, that's Unity, just sort of out in the wild. Right, you just kind of catch that, and you're like, oh, that's totally. Yeah, so that's nice. thanks to everyone who sent this in, particularly Ronald, who uh, sent in an email on the fifth about it. You know, the news is one of my favorite segments of Linux Action Show because I always feel like we're kind of like chronicling time, documenting things, and then you can look back at it and be like, oh yeah, that was a big deal, or that actually wasn't ever a big deal. That's kind of my favorite thing about capturing the news in in last. So doing the retrospectives, it's interesting to look back at that. I don't. I don't look at it as retreading ground. I look at it as sort of looking inside a time capsule and going back to that moment of time in Linux history. It's fascinating to do it over the whole history because we're going on like almost, what, seven, eight, nine years of Linux Action Show now? So there's a lot to cover. And big reason why we're still here is because of our next sponsor, and that's Ting. Go to last.ting.com, las.ting.com. That'll give you a $25 discount off your first Ting device. Or if you got one, you can bring with you a $25 credit. So why? 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 Chris. Chris. What? What? Oh, oh. Why would you switch to Ting? Oh, that's easy. It's mobile that makes sense. There's no contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. Right there, right? Because it's just your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. Ting them, adds them up, whatever buckets you fall into. That's all you got to pay. They got an awesome dashboard that lets you manage all of it, too. So, you know, you can actually go in there and keep track of things, turn devices on and off when you don't need them. There's a concept. Activate, deactivate devices through the dashboard. What a concept. It really is awesome. And it's all also powered by a companion app that goes either on your iOS device or your Android device. And I think one of the other things I really like about Ting is they're always up front with everybody. You can check out their blog all the time. They have changes to their new BYOD program uh, that you need to know about, and you can find that on the Ting blog. And you guys know we're big fans of Ting's taste and apps. Well, I don't know if it's all of Ting or just Kyra, but either way, some damn fine apps. And Kyra is here with our app pick of the week. Want to discover everything your smartphone can offer? Yes. I'm Kyra, and this is Ting's app of the week. Dribbler helps you find the best things about your device. Curated based on smartphone brand, operating system, and network operator, it gives you personalized tips and tricks that you'll actually care about. From neat apps to phone hacks and everything in between, it's a great way to stay on top of the ever-changing mobile landscape. When you first download the app, Dribbler does a quick analysis of your smartphone to determine the type of device you have, its operating system, and your mobile network. Dribbler then whips up a variety of content called drips that are tailored just for you. Whether you're tech savvy or a newbie, you'll find something that piques your interest. Sort between news and tips, apps, and games. When reading an article, you can add it as a bookmark or like it to improve Drippler's recommendations. Sources include Lifehacker, Business Insider, and Gizmodo, along with quality posts from tons of other popular blogs. Whether you're on Android or iOS, Drippler helps you take your smartphone experience to the next level. It's free, so why not give it a shot? App download links are in the description below. Thanks for watching, and see you next week. Last.ting.com. Go check them out. Last.ting.com. You get the discount and you support the big show. We really appreciate that. And I got a couple of devices I might recommend if you're not totally sure what you want. Uh, this is they don't have it all the time, so when they do have it, I like to point it out to you guys so that way the JB audience gets the first call. The Novatel My 5580s. It's a ninety-six dollar uh, hotspot that you would own, and then it's just a flat six dollars. And when you use the data. So this, for me, is like my insurance policy. I've always got connectivity, and if I, if I need to use it, then I just pay for 
it when I do. And if I'm not going to use it for a stretch time, I would just turn it off. $96. It gets you a tri-band LTE device. You can, you can connect with 10 devices to this thing. You get status on the LCD screen. I love it. I mean, it's just crazy. And and you're getting that at $96 because you're going to last.ting.com. Uh, and a couple other things I'll just point out super quick. The Aquios Crystal, they've got an unboxing video on their blog. I've heard so many amazing things about this screen. $278 when you go to last.ting.com. No contract. You own that device. It's not locked. You own that device. Uh, and then they've got the Galaxy Tab for black and the, the Galaxy Tab Bronze, too. Uh, a d- smaller tab device, $223. You know, they skimped on a couple of things on this on this particular one, but it's still got a pretty decent screen. still got a camera. It's got a 1.2 gigahertz quad-core processor. I mean, it's a pretty tight little device. You can own it at $223 with no contract. So you just use the data in this thing when you want data. How nice is that for a tablet? Just... To be able to have ubiquitous data and not have to worry about being suckered into some huge contract or early termination fee, that's what Ting's all about. Last.ting.com. Go check them out, and thanks for supporting the show. All right, now let's get back into the retrospective. Like I said, I love looking back at the news time capsule and picking out all of the juicy bits. I know everybody in the chat room is all giddy to talk about uh, Ubuntu's big change right. up this week, yeah. but I think it's better if we start with sort of the background to that. And we actually didn't yeah. cover it on this show. We talked about it extensively on Linux Unplugged. But uh, Debian has decided on systemd for now. Uh, this has been going around and around. We've covered it extensively on Linux Unplugged if you want all of the nitty-gritty details. The vote came down to, pretty much as expected, a 4-to-4 four four split between systemd and upstart. And then uh, B. Dale casted his um, tie-breaking vote, and the, the votes were in for systemd. That makes systemd the default the nit for the Jesse release of Debian. Mm-hmm. So that's when we're going to be seeing this. Uh, and this is, in in my opinion, huge because Debian is such a large upstream distribution. Debian making the switch to System D is sort of, to me, it was the signal that this is now the default init yes. for Linux going forward. You've got Red Hat, you've got Debian, you've got Arch, you've got SUSE. Oh, it's across on the board. D. Yeah, I mean, it's worth everything's going to pretty yeah. much be out. So that left one major distribution in the lurch, not on System D, but still on a pretty good init system. And of course, I'm talking about Ubuntu. Well, shortly after, um, let's see, this is actually on Friday. Yeah. Friday of this week, Mark Shuttleworth took to his blog with a really great post, and he titled it Losing Graciously. Mm. He starts with B. Dale's casting vote this week. The Debian Technical Committee has finally settled on the question of its init for both Debian and Ubuntu in favor of Systemd. Upstart has served the Ubuntu community extremely well. He says he'd like to thank the committee for their thoughtful debate under the pressure of the fishbowl. He said it set a high bar for analysis and experience-driven discussion. I agree with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He says, Upstart did serve Ubuntu very well. It gave us a great competitive advantage at a time when things became very dynamic in the kernel. It's been very stable, and it's been used both in Ubuntu and Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and of course, as we know, Chrome OS as mm-hmm. well. And it, had a high st- it set a high standard for canonical-led software, which I am proud of. Nevertheless, the decision is for Systemd, and given that Ubuntu is quite centrally a member of the Debian family, that's a decision we support. I will ask the members of the Ubuntu community to help implement this decision efficiently, bringing Systemd into both Debian and Ubuntu safely and expeditiously. I will no doubt, it will no doubt take time to achieve stability and converge that we, what we enjoy today. Uh, and it sounds like 1404 will continue to ship with Upstart as we kind of expected. Yeah, and that happen. makes sense at this point, at this Absolutely. juncture. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, and just like Red Hat Enterprise 6 will continue to be used for years mm-hmm. with Upstart. Uh, but I will ask, he says, he goes on, I will ask the Ubuntu tech board, many of whom do not work for Canonical, to review the position and map out an appropriate transition plan. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he goes on to say, and it is contentious. And this is something we've noticed. Like, boy, this has been a heated debate. Yeah, boy. And Mark really kind of put it in into frame here, I thought. He says, and it is contentious because it's required for both developers and system administrators right. to understand its quirks and capabilities. No wonder this was a difficult debate. The consequences for hundreds of thousands of people are very high. From my perspective, the fact is that if good people were clearly split, it suggests that either option would work perfectly well. Mm -hmm. I trust the new stewards of PID-1 will take that responsibility as seriously as the Upstart team has done and be pleasant to work with and onward. Good deal. Awesome. Well well put. Really well put. Uh, I think a lot of people um, didn't respond as graciously. No. I saw a lot of people I saw some just... (laughs) Yes, there, there was some Nelson from The Simpsons going on. Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, I actually yeah. was not surprised by this. Not even really, actually, at all, at all, um, because it's 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 ruthlessly pragmatic of Mark to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime, I know this is going to be funny with the shadow in the shadow of mirror, but anytime you can minimize differences at that level of the Linux operating system, you're reducing cost for Canonical yeah. because anything that differs from the norm is something they have to maintain on their own. That's right. That's also, it. I think the undertone here, even though Mark didn't address it, is Upstart has been neglected in a sense. There's features that Upstart, or bugs that Upstart, or deficiencies that Upstart has that have not been addressed. Uh, the guy who originally created Upstart, uh, Scott James Remnant, is no longer involved mm-hmm. with the project. He did, however, take to G Plus to comment because Upstart's his baby. That's right. And uh, he went ahead and posted. He said, I'm happy to see that Debian has reached a decision about its default init system and that the Ubuntu team have been gracious about it and opted to support that support their downstream. What will probably surprise most people is that I think it was the right decision. Now, remember, this is the guy that created Upstart. He's, I mean, yeah, that's a real key piece to really let's soak in for a minute. Yeah. I mean, I think this is everybody's actually been pretty gracious yes. about this. At least people, <laughs> I don't know about the audience. Well, I think you're always going to have some detractors. You're going to always yeah. have some folks that maybe want to go a different direction with it. But for the most part, I think people have been pretty, uh, I think they're just happy it's over. I think more than anything. Yeah, he says, uh, he says with, you know, I think it's the right decision. System B has the momentum out of the two projects and has both the technical and community leadership advantages. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah Friendly definitely. competition, this is, uh, this is so beautiful. Friendly competition is a brilliant development model until there is a clear winner, at mm. which point friendly collaboration tends to work out better. So competition is good until we have a winner, and then we should right. transition, he's saying, to friendly collaboration. He says it is time for that transition. I hadn't posted anything on, to this effect until now because I didn't want my position to influence Debian's position. That would have been fair on the current upstart. That wouldn't have been fair on the current upstart maintainers, and he lists them here. Mm-hmm who've been doing an absolutely fantastic job continuing the project I started. Hmm. So now we're going to see, of course, we're going to see Ubuntu make the transition. I assume we're going to see Chrome OS make the transition. I would think so, unless Google wants to take that on, which I doubt. So So. we've just watched a massive, um, cohesive, like uh, like a a kajillion of of the Linux core. Um, All of these distributions are going to be essentially operating the same way using the same software at that low level. And a lot of stuff is going to be built on top of that. A lot of stuff already is going to be built, already mm-hmm. has been. And a lot of good features are in there. There's some real FUD going around the web right now about SystemD that is oh, yeah? completely, in, there's a new article that just went around this last couple of days. It is technically inaccurate. It is filled with flaws. The author has very, very little understanding of SystemD. Didn't stop him from writing up a big <laughs> post and it going all over the web. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, so, you know, it's not like everything's all final and done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, it. 
when we were doing Linux Unplugged this last Tuesday, we were really cautious about how we titled the episode yeah. because we thought, gosh, it wouldn't be that surprising if Ubuntu rolled back on this decision. Well, it's not like one of those things to where, and I forget exactly what uh, show it was, but some, or I think I think it was uh, election results where they like film ahead of time, like the, <laughs> the possible <laughs> yeah. scenarios, yeah. and we couldn't really do that, so, yeah. you know. Yeah, and um, I think though now with uh, with uh, Mark and Ubuntu coming out, um, I think it clearly, I think it's everything's clearly falling down on yeah. the side of System D. Now, what do you think about this whole? And we watched Debian debate this sure. for months and months, and then and it got really heated and nasty, and we covered that in Linux Unplugged. Then Mark comes out and is like, "Okay, all right, Ubuntu, you're doing this. Discussion over. Just boy, boom. I, you know, I think." I honestly, I almost wonder why that wasn't done in the first place, and not not for any other reason short of just what's the point. I, I never really understood <laughs> what the value of why would you want to take on more work. That's not, I mean, the mere thing. I kind of get the rationale to a degree, kind of, but with Upstart, I never really understood what specifically what problem was it solving that well, System D did not provide. Well, Upstart, see, you know, I mean, that's really, true now, and yeah. I think that's what's so gracious about them making the switch. Right. It was not the case when they created. Upstart. No, I, I realized at the beginning, but I'm talking about like in the last couple of months right. at very minimum. Yeah. I mean, here toward the end, it was kind of like it's kind of obvious. I, yeah. I would think so. Yeah. Um, and that's not. A, I'm not faulting anyone for that. I'm just saying I, I would think that it would just be selfishly in their best interest because then they can take those resources and focus them on exactly. here or whatever else. Exactly. They want to focus on. And I also I don't believe that it was quite as clear cut as Mark just coming on high and saying this is what we're oh, doing. No, I suspect yeah. there's been a lot of internal discussion yeah. as they've been watching this. Of course. And would have, would this announcement have been made had Debian chose Upstart? No. Mm. Right. Mm. Upstart, nope. would, Upstart nope. would still be the init for Ubuntu yeah. for for a while forward. But I'm excited. Uh, you know, we still have this whole mirror thing. But I'm excited to see where uh, where uh, the next generation of Ubuntu, maybe a year or two from now, where it's running on top of System D. It's got a full Qt powered interface. I mean, this really could be something to look and really a competitive. This could be a competitive distro in a couple mm -hmm, of years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm really glad to see that at least a very important part of the distro will not be stagnating. Will not be different than everybody else. Agreed. Will not be on its own island. Absolutely agreed. And I think, you know, looking back on it more with the whole uh, upstart system, do you think, I think a lot of it may, you know, does it, did it not feel like they were maybe waiting for Debian to figure I it out? I think that's, you know, I mean, true, it's yeah. like not to point out the obvious, but it just kind of feels like it's like, you know, they couldn't, well, they couldn't outwardly say that because it just seemed cheesy. But you know. the other thing that it made me wonder about, too, is oh. there was been uh, some accusations that Canonical was influencing the Debian init discussion. Mm. Mm. That may still be the case because it would have been better for them, perhaps, if up if they gone upstart. But yeah. with their willingness to switch over to System D fairly, you know, without any resistance, yeah, it makes me think that they might just, not have had a dog I, in that I, hunt. They maybe were, they weren't pushing yeah. it. If they were willing to switch over that quickly, then boy, you know, I think it really just came down to a Debian situation to where they really just needed to say, look, we we don't really. Maybe the, it's very probable and possible in the last two months they didn't really care. They just needed Debian to figure it out so they could follow suit. That's possible. Yeah. I don't know. Um, one point to note but, is, it, uh, from what I can gather, Upstart will remain the init on the phone for a while because the phone is using a whole bunch of features in Oh, Upstart. sure, sure. And I don't know what the plan is to address that. So I believe, and I could be wrong, but I'm 90% sure that this switch is going to affect desktop mm -hmm. and servers. Okay. And, and uh, by the way, let's not forget that the real moneymaker for mm -hmm. Ubuntu, the, you know, is cloud. It's the right. it's Amazon EC2 deployments. It's it's DigitalOcean droplets. It's right. rack, it's all of these different places that run Ubuntu, and in those circumstances, 
System D is the better init. It is. Socket activation is just That's one right. of the many things that I talk about all the time. And I, I so I, when you look at it from the lens of where they're actually making money with the Ubuntu product right now, you could see you could see the justification for going to system. Absolutely. Well, they're an enterprise shop. At the end of the day, they they do the nicey nicey with the whole desktop thing. Right, That's cute. Right, right. But at the end of the day, they're making their bank with the right. With the, you know. Yeah. The support contracts. Sure. And, yeah, and the whatnot. I, I yeah. agree. Home users. Not there's not not much money there. Right. And and Sadly. and, 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 and when you look at it in that context, the switch to system D. Yeah, uh, not only makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. but it kind of gives reassurance to people who have uh, Ubuntu deployed who wanted some of those features. You know, I I was just saying on the pre-show that uh, for years and years I was always deploying Gentoo on servers, and then that got right. crazy as right. I started to get more clients, and I you know needed had more didn't have enough time in the day. Sure, and I switched over to Ubuntu and Debian, and if I was still deploying Ubuntu and Debian today for clients, I'd be watching the System D discussion, thinking you know I'm going to go with whichever one is going with System D, mm-hmm. and. For me, that would mean I might continue to deploy Ubuntu long-term support of these clients now, knowing that in the future there's going to be a migration path to System D for them. True. So I think it's I think it's a good competitive thing for Ubuntu as well. Very true. This is always the part of the show where we deep dive into a topic, and I love really getting nitty gritty. And one of the reasons we've been able to do it for so long now is because of our segment sponsor, System76, creators of machines designed to run Linux. So that means it's going to be problem free. The hardware is good to go. You put the Linux distribution on there, and it rocks. They ship them with Ubuntu, and it is great. System76.com. Go over there and check them out. I really love the Ultra Pro. They have a whole line of laptops right now. I'm using the Bonobo Extreme. And it's on sale as I record this. A absolute portable gaming powerhouse. You want to play some serious Steam games? Uh, it's a no compromise experience. Uh, I've never had a laptop that's been a total gaming no compromise experience until this one. They've also got a whole great range of desktops built here in the US of A and repaired here in the US of A. That Leopard Extreme, if you're doing production, is so awesome. We have two, count them, two Wild Dog performances uh, in production of creating the Linux Action Show. And that Rattel performance, I'm telling you, it's a sleeper. Because you can buy it at the low price, and then it has open PCI Express expansion slots, so you can upgrade it later on, and then that save will touch. You know what? I'm a believer in touch now, and I think that's a great-looking rig. They also have uh, some servers that might uh, fit in with your existing infrastructure. Go System76 all the way, because you're supporting a vendor who's in the Linux community, and you're also buying some hardware that you know is going to work with whatever Linux project you've got. System76.com. Go check them out. A big thanks, System76, for sponsoring this segment. I have several rigs now, and I know my next rig is going to be a System76 one. I've especially experienced that after experimenting with systems not necessarily designed with Linux, what a frustrating experience. What a frustrating experience. I'm really glad there's companies out there like System76 that I can recommend to friends and family and you guys, too. All right, so let's get into the rest of the nitty-gritty. Like I said, I love getting my hands dirty, so let's see. Ryan, you're one of our guests who I've wanted to have on for a really long time, but I needed like an excuse to ask. And so PAX is going on this weekend. Braid just hit Steam for Linux on, I think, Friday. It's a big week. So, Ryan, welcome to the Linux Action Show. Hi. Hi. Hi there, and uh, thanks for joining us on a Sunday from uh, your uh, family's house. I really appreciate that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we put up the kitschy picture. Yeah, I like that. Nice. that. I was gonna say it's, we got a, we have a background here. You've got a background there. It's good. Yes, good. I let, I wanted to start for those in our audience who are maybe not totally familiar with. Uh, things beyond when Steam was announced for Linux. I think a lot of people think that that's when Linux gaming started, is when Valve said, here's Steam. But it turns out there's been certain folks that have been behind the scenes, sometimes not so behind the scenes, working on gaming for Linux, like yourself, really since the 90s. And um, I don't know if this would be the best place to start, but Matt and I were both huge fans of Loki software. I mean, we threw so much money at Loki. Um, And so I I think maybe people have heard the name. 
they don't know okay. what it is, and maybe they don't know uh, really why it was important, and really how it was sort of a heyday of Linux gaming back in the early 2000s, wasn't it? Oh, well, yeah. In, in a sense. In, in, in many ways, it was Linux gaming back in the early 2000s, right. the very, very late 90s. Um, but yeah, for those that don't know, there was a company called Loki Software, and they uh, they, they only did one thing. They, they, they licensed AAA big hit uh, video games for Windows from Activision and you know big companies like that, and they would port them to Linux and sell retail box copy for Linux. Um, you know, and literally try to be selling in retail stores and stuff like that. So you could go out and buy a CD with you know uh, Civilization called a power on it, or Heavy Gear Two, or um, you know uh, SimCity Two Thousand was on there at one point. Uh, they they did, I think. Close to 15 games. I can't remember. It was like 13, I think, was their total. That's an unlucky number. Maybe that was what happened there. <laughs> um, but they, they, um, they, they had some problems. They had some business problems. And they were very early to a market. Like, I mean, they might have been a decade early for what they wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, they, they couldn't sustain the business. And they made some business mistakes, too. And went out of business and poof, were gone. Uh, uh, and a lot of people that think of commercial Linux stuff, that's what they think of. For video games originally is is Loki. They they had a big staff of some of the smartest programmers they could find. Myself accepted from that. Um, and <laughs> and it's funny. Like I, you you go to conference at computer uh, game conferences like GDC and mm-hmm. E3, and mm-hmm. people still talk about yeah. Loki. And they're like, I never ran Linux, but man, those were some smart motherfuckers out there, man. Let us see <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you can see them now. Like if, if you were to follow them, a lot of them are like, you know. One of them is works for Activision Central Technology, which is like they parachute into a project, rescue it, <laughs> yeah. and parachute it out. And that's all they do. You know, it's like the, there was a massive bug in Call of Duty. This guy came in, fixed it, and like the Lone Ranger rode right back out of town, you know. And but, uh, other ones are shipping. You and, know, and not just talent, though, right? Other things came from Loki Software that are still sort of a key part of Linux gaming today, right? right? Oh, absolutely. And this is a, it, it's easy being an employee that. You know, was there when they were going out of business. It's easy to be bitter about what they did wrong, but there's a lot of things they did right. And one of the things they did right was they took all these tools they needed to build because they just simply did not exist. Mm-hmm. And they built them and they open sourced them. And they were open source all along. It wasn't like, oh, Hail Mary passes there going out the door. But, um, and some of those, uh, many of those kept us, were incredibly useful for a full decade after Loki was. Would, would that be they, things like SDL? Uh, well, SDL is still incredibly important, yeah. but you know, other things like how do you install software when you don't know if it's going to be Debian or Red right, Hat? Right, right. Loki well, installer. You know, yeah, and we we called that Loki setup, and it was GPL software, yeah. and we wrote it from scratch. And, Loved it. Uh, and then we, you know, the the people that still need it, like me, like after I left Loki, I'm still porting video games to Linux, like yeah. we did Unreal Tournament 2003, right. and stuff like that, yeah. among other things. And, and the great thing about installers is that you don't think about them until the night before you ship, and then you find all the bugs in the installer. So, <laughs> oh, I bet. single game we shipped with Loki set up a full 10 years after Loki went out of business where we weren't still like, we need this feature added. We never had a game that was more than four gigabytes before, you know. Uh, and then you find out there's a 32-bit integer you're overflowing in the installer and, you know, things like that. Yeah. And, um, and, and those were useful for an incredible amount of time. But the one thing they did, that the best thing that Loki ever did was a piece of software called SDL. Simple Direct Media Layer, okay. um, which we use. It's kind of like DirectX for Linux, kind right. of. It's not actually DirectX. Don't right, because it doesn't replace OpenGL. No, no, it, it complements all that stuff. It makes it easy to build uh, a game. It, it hides all the ugly stuff from you that you would have to worry about on an X server, heaven forbid, or also right. Pulse Audio and stuff like that. And it takes care of all that for you, makes it easy, and it makes it portable. And we've spent thousands of man hours improving that. We're about to go past our 10,000th 
commit in the revision control system for SDL. Wow. Um, Valve has hired the main developer on that, uh, and it's not his full-time job, but he's, he's still working on SDL frequently, and then there's a whole army of other people improving it, and it's driven by the needs. We need to make games that do incredible things, and you know this open-source project has you know, been there to help us all this time, and we improve it and give those changes back to everyone, and everyone wins from it. So one of the things that uh, a thread I, I feel like I've been picking up on a lot is a lot of developer discontent with OpenGL. And I'm wondering if maybe this wouldn't be a moment, if you could touch on your thoughts. Obviously, this is an area you have some experience in. It's particularly in Linux, is, is OpenGL, is it hopeless? Does it, does it need to be thrown out like Apple and Microsoft tell me it does, and AMD? Um, no, it doesn't need to be thrown out. And it, the thing, this is important, is that it will never be thrown out entirely because there's always going to be games, including some of those Loki games from the late 90s, that use OpenGL and won't be updated. So we're always going to have it. Right. And there's lots and lots of books written about it and lots and lots of documentation and code examples. So throwing it out entirely, you don't need to do that, and it won't ever happen, I think. Yeah. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean you can't replace it. I mean, we're always going to have access to that layer of software, but... Um, but what you're seeing from everyone, not just OpenGL, what you're seeing from DirectX, or Direct3D 12, which is the next mm -hmm. Direct3D, what you're seeing from AMD's Mantle, what Mantle. you're seeing from Apple's Metal, right. um, is that they're going to something much more low level. And that's actually really a blessing for game developers and for everyone, I think. because mm -hmm. So the OpenGL that you would have used in the 2000s and in the 90s was what was called the fixed function pipeline. I don't know how technical you care if I get here. Go for but, it, man. Um, yeah, definitely. The fixed function pipeline was a lot of like you set – these states, you know, I need this thing to alpha blend, I need this thing to, you know, do this transformation on it and draw this polygon with this texture. And, yeah. you know, you set all these states and you tell it to draw, and it does a lot of math on all that data you gave it and figures out what should eventually be spit out onto the screen. Um, and that was good when it was very simple. Like, I just want to draw, like, a little teapot spinning around or right. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Or a gear. <laughs> uh, but that really, really became an albatross around everyone's deck. And Direct3D was like this, too. Um, both the major 3D APIs were like this. Sure. Um, you would, that became a real albatross where there's so much state you can set and you don't have to set it all. You tweak the bits you need, you don't touch the other things, and sometimes they interact in really strange ways that you aren't really thinking of. Mm. And it got to the point where I, somebody has this in their email signature, and I always like this, that when you're dealing with OpenGL and you're dealing with Frisbee tricks, you can't really promise much more than, hey, watch this and see what happens. So, <laughs> I like that. I got gotcha. you. It's true because, you know, inevitably everyone's like, okay, I, did, I set everything up and I drew this you know, rectangle on the screen and nothing happened. Oh, you know, the camera's pointing the wrong way. Or, oh, you forgot to enable this level of mitmaps or whatever. There's so many things that can go wrong and they're not really errors because the horrible thing about computers is they do exactly what you tell them to do. Right. Definitely. Much to our own detriment. Um, well, so but, I guess, so it sounds like there's absolutely a need. My my concern is what is a Linux user's salvation? Because Windows has the next version of DirectX. Apple sure. could eventually move Metal over to Mac OS X. Maybe. I don't, probably not, but maybe. One thought, about, one thought about Windows real quick here. Yeah. They have their next thing. That's true. But Windows 8 people have it. And one thing we've seen right. recently, because Unreal Engine 4 is now the big new Unreal Engine. Right. And they still target Windows XP with that, right. but if you want to use Windows XP, it defaults to OpenGL because that's the only way they can target older versions of Windows. So keep that in mind, and that's one of the reasons we won't get rid of OpenGL. They have it's almost their own anchor in a sense; they can't uh, move well, beyond yeah. it. Well, the, the, the biggest curse, the biggest problem Direct3D has is Microsoft. 
you know, so, the, <laughs> is Mantle Linux's only salvation from the open the, the perils of OpenGL? Because that doesn't feel well, like a great. So, I mean, it's a good solution, but it doesn't feel like a great solution for everyone. Well, uh, let, let me let me finish my answer sure, here. Yeah. This, is, this is important. Okay. So the fixed function pipeline is complicated, and we threw that away. I mean, it's still there; you can still use it. But yeah. now we use we use the programmable pipeline shaders. Okay. And it used to be that you had to become become this as things got more and more complex. You had to be this real OpenGL ninja. Remember all the different states that could be set and how they could interact, and all the different extensions that could screw with that and stuff. And all that got thrown away. Fixed function pipeline's gone. You could still use it, but you, mostly you turn it off and use shaders. Hmm. And suddenly, it was much easier to be a graphics programmer. You could do more complex stuff, so you still needed those graphics geniuses. But there was this democratization where it's like, you know how to program. Watch out for some gotchas, but basically you say, here's my numbers. I calculate these numbers. Eventually, they become a pixel at the end of the whole yeah. pipeline. Yeah. But more or less, you could see what it was doing, and you controlled each of it. There was no mystery to it. you right. know. And I think that's good. But even that is becoming more complex as time goes on. So Metal and Mantle and DirectX 12, what they've basically done is say, take out all the other framework stuff so you control everything directly. You still have shaders, but um, you don't have to worry about these states over here. Basically, all the rest of the states are gone. You don't have to worry about what thread you're doing it from. You can do what's best for multi-threading, et cetera. And it, it becomes a much simpler prospect. It's much lower level. You have to do some more work, but you have a lot more power over it and a lot less complexity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true of all of those next-generation APIs. Now, they're talking about something right now called OpenGL Next. That's just the generic code mm -hmm. name for it. And it, I don't know what it will be, and a lot of people are going to make this decision, and Lord knows they can get it wrong. But theoretically, what we'll end up with is, here's your old OpenGL core API. It's still there. You can still use it. But OpenGL Next will give you something like Mantle or like Metal or DirectX 12. And you know, very low level, very simple. You get all the power of the hardware, and it stays the hell out of your way. Um, that's probably where we're going with OpenGL. And you, th what they won't abandon is things that have been really valuable for OpenGL, uh, namely the extension system. Mm -hmm. um, there's a guy named Eric Lengel who is kind of famous in the OpenGL world. He's, been, he's written books about OpenGL and stuff. And he has his own little engine. He's made the C4 engine. And he had a problem. He's like, I have these shadows I'm drawing in the engine without getting into too many details. Uh, and I'm getting you know, some artifacts here I can't deal with. And the way you would deal with this particular problem is to use this feature in Direct3D, which has never been in part of OpenGL. Mm -hmm. And five days later, on Twitter, an NVIDIA engineer said, I have just fixed your problem. Use this extension now. <laughs> and wow. it's in the next driver update yeah. for NVIDIA's driver. So poof. That is kind of awesome. Try to do that on a multi-year cycle for Direct3D. If right. that feature's not there, it's not coming. Right. So, that is kind of um, killer. Yeah, so, and that's important. We need to keep that. And so the next generation of OpenGL, whatever it looks like, will be probably a lot like met Metal and Mantle and stuff, but it will also in include that incredible extensibility, which gives you that power to add features that you didn't think of or you didn't know you needed when you designed it. Right, it wasn't an idea in the marketplace, and then a few years down the road, yeah. all of a sudden we need this. Um, so if, I, if we were to look at the current state of technologies on Linux, and uh, let's say somehow, if we take away the user base problem, because that's either going to happen or it's not eventually, and if, if, say we had users, and there was lots of... It's already happening, I just wanted to throw okay. that out. Well, that's where I wanted to get to, actually. It's like, what, okay, assuming the users are starting to come on board, which I have the sense they are, um, and I'm sure you must have a very good sense of that, uh, what else is, technologically speaking, like OpenGL or sound subsystems, what is the biggest barriers that drive you crazy when you're porting games or writing games for Linux? What are you still like banging your head against the table and think, gosh, we have to have this fixed? Well, the, the thing that is always the biggest problem is the 3D API. And it's, it's not that the functionality is not there, and sometimes it's not. But like I said, there's been a lot of extensions to OpenGL where it's like, oh, we can do this in 
Windows, and we just you know the hardware can do it because if I put this into Windows, it can do it. But but OpenGL extensions over the years have been coming like machine gun fire to yeah. you know solve those problems. That's but helped a lot. But you can't always that, rely on extensions. So I hear a lot of developers saying, "Well, I know that you could do this as extensions under Linux, but I can't depend on those extensions being there, so I won't target for those." Uh, time solves all problems, though, and there, there are things where it's <laughs> nice. like, and as someone who's been doing this for years, I'm still like, I don't know, I should check to make sure they have at least OpenGL 2.0. What if they're still on right. 1.2, which is like 1998 technology. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there comes a point where you have to be like, I'm sorry, this yeah. game won't run. Get a right. better no, Yeah, you want to do modern gaming, then step up. I, mean, I, I think, especially, too, when it comes to certain types of gaming, I think that's actually legitimate because the medium has to move forward. So Yeah, what? of course, of course. And, um uh, what was I going to say? And, you know, if you're doing something very small, like if you're doing Angry Birds, like the technology's there. You don't yeah. have to worry about it. If you're yeah. doing Unreal Engine 4, you might find right now in Linux that your best bet is to have an NVIDIA card with the closed source drivers. But even there, the best thing I've ever found for fixing a problem in a, in a video driver is shipping something that doesn't work with it. And the open source people hmm. are... Uh, like the open source developers, like if you're talking about NVIDIA, like they're they're and AMD, they're concerned about fixing their bugs and they fix them in a timely manner, and we mm -hmm. appreciate that. Mm -hmm. We really do. But the open source people, man, they do not like it when a game doesn't work on their drivers. And that, there there are lots of games I've shipped that don't work on you know Intel's open source drivers yeah. on the first day, and by day three or four, man, it works yeah. great. It works yeah. great, you know, because they look at it and they're like, well, it's a little embarrassing. They want they want to fix their problems too. They don't know they have some of these problems until I mean. Everything needs a test case, and especially with 3D drivers, the, there's so much complexity. That it's like until you know Unreal Engine 4 broke this, we didn't know it was broken. No one's used it. And then you know uh, Ian from the Intel team or uh, whomever from the AMD team will come in and just be like, boop, 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 fixed it, had test case, done. And, uh, nice. there's, there's, and there's been things where it's, you know, you think, well, there's no way they could ever do this. But I'm looking at the Novell, N Nouveau drivers, the yeah. open source re-implemented like reverse engineered NVIDIA drivers. And they're doing incredible things with that. Like I would have never thought that project would get off the ground. I thought that would be like one commit of a readme file and source. Yeah. Yeah. But they've, I mean, you can run shaders on those things. You can, I mean, it's, it's amazing how far they've gotten. And yeah. every time a new game comes out that doesn't work, you shouldn't think of it as, Oh, this game doesn't work on, you know, the open source drivers. It, what you should say is this doesn't work on the open source drivers today. Yeah. Tomorrow it probably right, will. Then, right. So. Yeah. I like um, that. And, that that has gotten better every year, release after release. And now you, know, you you touch though on you know you they, it's a, almost a point of pride. They're motivated to fix on them, and you are. I, I well, feel they like give a shit. if I had to summarize, they give a shit about that. Right, exactly. And I think you are able as an independent developer to recognize that as an asset to that platform. I don't sure. know that EA has the ability to recognize that as an asset. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I could see how it's appealing to indie developers, but that's not sure. something that really brings over the huge development shops. Is that a problem, do you think? I, I, I'm going to say no, but um, yes, I do think that there, between indie shops, so I'm not even going to say indie, I'm going to say smaller game developers and big developers, there's a difference in quality control. And there mm. are games that I could ship as uh, with indie developers or even just small commercial developers that were... It's like, well, this doesn't work on 50% of the GPUs out there, but they'll fix it soon enough. They and they're like, okay, whatever. Whereas EA <laughs> might be like, we have a checklist, <laughs> yeah. and it needs to fix. It needs to work or have a workaround on these systems. But workarounds are a waste of time in this particular case because, like, it's the problem is going to solve itself as soon as you ship. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't run into that problem in great detail, yeah. but it's certainly something I have seen before. But but the thing is, fine. Uh, no nobody sees EA towering 
lumbering over here as fast as they can to port Linux games. So, you know, it's let Unreal Engine 4 yeah. push the hardware as hard as it can and yeah. let other games come in and right. try all sorts of weird experimental stuff. Right. And yeah. then when those drivers stabilize, they could show up. Yeah. We'll wait. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait till it's obvious that they're that they're not here and right. that they should be. Uh, so why don't we talk? So we're noting Wine fixes a lot of those things too because yeah. people run the Windows version because through the OpenGL drivers and that will often trigger a lot of the same problems. So, so in all honesty, do you see um, looking back at as long as you've been doing this, do you really see this as I don't know if a turning point's the right word, but a new era of desktop gaming for Linux. Is this really something new? Are you seeing a lot more developer interest? Are you getting people contacting you saying, hey, what would this what would a project like this look like? Is is that happening? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, and you have to understand, you have to choose your friends carefully because I don't get I, I, I always I always get contacted by email and phone calls and stuff like that asking for Linux ports, but I'm getting a lot more contacts now where they're asking for SteamOS ports. Mm. And so you have to decide if that's okay. SteamOS is literally no different from Linux. If yeah. you upload a Linux version to Steam, that's what they give you on SteamOS. Yeah, it's yeah. not like you do a separate build for it. Right. So. And there is no... Like, how do I detect SteamOS? You don't. You just build a Linux version of the game. And, so you're um, thinking you're okay with that? Because I've been thinking about I've been wondering the same thing lately. Because I noticed, did you uh, see this week that MSI announced yeah. a new gaming motherboard? And on the box, it says SteamOS support and with a with a <laughs> picture on there. And I thought, wow, now we're seeing SteamOS support on gaming motherboards. I, I think I, it's surprising to me. I, I'm not sure how I feel. Part of me is concerned by that. But part of me also wants to think if, if the commercial face of Linux gaming is SteamOS, then that's... There is no commercial face of it. Like if, if gaming sucks on a Mac, if then you, know, <laughs> go, you talk to Apple, you know if oh, it yeah. stinks on Windows, you can look at Microsoft. Right. Who do you blame for Linux problems? Right. You know, and, uh, who uh, not even blame? Who do you talk to? You know, it's like you and you and me. We're very good at saying, okay, we know if the br the bug is in this prop package or this thing, you know, you go talk to Bob who maintains that package. Exactly. But yeah. like. As, as terms of like customer support, you don't call Bob. You know, right. it's like it's not. Yeah, That's it, always it, why I thought Ubuntu did really well is because at the end of the day, a company like Google could know that if they had a big problem, they could probably get Mark Shuttleworth on the phone and say, "Mark, you got to fix this. This is Larry, sure. and this is important." Uh, sure. And alternately, being Google, you can also just do your own distribution yeah. called Android. Yeah. And <laughs> there it is. There it is. Yeah. They don't on the desktop though. Interestingly, well, and I have yeah. one, one thought along that that I've run into on Steam frequently. Is you have a lot of people that they maybe they're new to the Linux scene. They release a game as developers, and they're saying, "Hey, this is a great game. Go ahead and buy it." Okay, I bought it for Linux. Oh yeah, that Linux thing. Uh, so we don't really we we support it. Um, you can go to the forums here. We know it's a bug. Um, screw you, and screw you again. And by the way, we're probably never going to fix this. But you know, go ahead and oh, keep buying our stuff. I drive that. It drives me nuts because I see I that more and more frequently. Doing here, so. you know, yeah. and, and so no, I don't mean like all developers, I mean just like certain, certain, yeah, some or guys actually, you know, uh, and usually it's people that develop for Windows that kind yeah, of like exactly. Linux port. I, That's usually where I'm finding so that. So, it goes, like, we just did a couple of interviews at PAX yeah. 2014, um, this weekend. And uh, a lot of them are like, oh, yeah, we have Linux support. And they'll yeah. even have like a picture of Tux up on their booth. Right. And then yes. you talk to them about it. And they're like, yeah, well, really, we launched Unity. And we noticed yeah. there was a Linux export option. And it just <laughs> builds it for us. That's it. And that's usually what these people are. And we are. submit it to Steam. And like, right. and like it just does it for us. I mean, I feel like they're posers. They're not like you to where you're actually are, doing it. I mean, they're just like, are, what are you know? your thoughts on all that? Are, I guess, are you asking me if this is a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. Or if it's okay. if it's them being lazy or are they just inept, is or this going to be a problem? I mean, yeah. Like, is are these tools because of yeah. the state of Linux and how many people are on it? Where these tools are like the, everybody wants just the easy option. Yeah. Are you worried about sort of like a a bad rep? I, I don't think, I don't think we should penalize people 
because it wasn't hard enough for them. Okay. Um, I, I think I, I played, I don't know if you played this game, there's a game called Gone Home by the Fulbright Company. It was mm-hmm. a, a big indie success. Um, and it's very good. If you haven't played it, it's totally yeah, it's very good. Simulator ever. Um, I was prepared to hate it, and I really found I loved it. By the time I <laughs> Don't you love that? It, it's built in Unity. As far as I know, they have no Linux programmers there. Oh. Uh, I played the entire game with no problems on Linux. Yeah, okay. And I think it was simply like Steve over at the Fulbright Company clicked the Linux button and yeah. posted it to Steam. And he's like, I don't know anything about it, but if it works, great. you know. And it okay. worked great. And I would not get a Linux version of that game. Yeah. I would have been oh, okay. putting on Windows to play that game, or yeah. maybe Mac OS. I don't sure. know. If that button didn't exist in Unity. So, um, and Unity is very kind of far from the metal. Like you don't really get that down and dirty in mm-hmm. Unity. It's kind of more of a higher level thing. You write in C Sharp for the most part, and there's a lot of really great tools in it. So, generally speaking, you aren't going to have an option to put something in there that's going to be really screwy and non-portable. Okay. For the most part. Um, so, in many ways, that means they've given a better development environment, a safer development environment to allow for that cross-platform magic. And um, I, I think it's a good thing. I, and I do okay. think that you're right. There's going to be people that hit that button and go, if you have a problem, man, you're on your own. I don't even know what to tell you about it. Like, yeah, totally. Uh, like, I don't even run Linux. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there have been a couple people that really felt badly, and they're like, I'm really sorry. I'll do everything I can, but I don't know what to do. And that's cool. It's yeah. like, okay, just at least address that you give a give a crap. I mean, that's all I yeah. ask, you know. And there are some to people those, that did that, too. To those people, if they're yeah. watching, there are people that will help you fix that. Yeah. Like if you have there you some stupid problem, like it just doesn't work with – you, you need you a parachute know. guy. You need yeah, you need, you need the parachute guy. The parachute guy. But, but for, for things with Unity, the problems are usually very small and right. easy to fix. And a lot of it's like, well, just – there's a lot of things you don't know how to do right until you've done it wrong before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've made a whole career of doing things wrong. So, um, you know, it, it, there's other people like me that will right. be able to help in those cases. Nice. Spoke, I, spoken like, like someone who truly has experience. Right. Really, exactly. truly, like, very much so. But Ludum Dare, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Ludum Dare, it's a game jam. Uh, the 48th of these, apparently. That, that uh, or 30th or something. He, it's 48 hours you build a game, everyone picks up Unity and runs with it. And oh, I'm cool. seeing a lot of Linux versions of those little like weekend game jam games that came out where yeah. you're like, I hit the Linux button. And nice. now you have this big pile of cute little like experimental yeah, pieces I, of art. I actually, some of my, cool. I've had, I've re- I mean, not, I'm not trying to disparage Unity. In fact, uh, uh, Rashard, I think is how you say it. Mm. I, I've really enjoyed that little platformer that game. game. It's a Unity game. Sure. Um, so kind of in the same vein, just because, you know, uh, now that you're here, i got to put you on the spot to make sure that everybody can, uh, of course, take issue. No, I'm kidding. People will totally... Okay. <laughs> just in your opinion, what about uh, the situation, say, like with The, the Witcher, where uh, it's wrapped in there? It's not wine, but it's kind of like wine. And yeah. for some folks like me, it ran flawlessly. And for some other folks, it was horrible. And, and the big sure. narrative we saw was, oh, is Linux just going to be the bastion of emulated games? It's just going to be the Windows wasteland of games. And everybody was freaking out for like two weeks. Sure, sure. Is it a big deal? What do you think? I, I'm going to say it's not a big deal. But I, the, the thing is this. Is I, I feel like a lot of people behave really poorly about the Witcher thing. And it's like you have a new technology, and I'm not saying I, I don't really know anything about what they did with it. I, I know it's wine-like, but I don't know yeah, that it's, it's like an Eon wrapper they call it or something. Yeah, whatever it's called, but Some like brandy thing. Yeah, like like anything else, this is a very simple software problem. You have a whole bunch, whole millions of lines of code you bring to a new platform, and there's going to be some bugs. Now, the, the concern, and you you mentioned this before, where it's like you know someone poops out a game, they're like, okay, it's done. Thanks for the money, sucker. Yeah, right. Uh, that's a bad attitude. You want to absolutely make examples of those people. But what I have seen with The Witcher is that they had a really bad launch because it's a whole new platform they're totally unfamiliar with, and they should be applauded for wading into the pool. That's not like Mm -hmm. 
that's not like getting thrown into the pool to see if you swim. That's like getting thrown off a cliff to see if you fly, mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and they, they, they kind of flappy bird along there, but, um, <laughs> I, they didn't abandon it at that point. They're like, we shipped it, move right. on to the next thing. It seems to me that they are in fact interested in making fixes. Yeah. They're improving and for that, it. Yeah. They, they should get your thanks and they should get your cooperation. And if you feel that you get the product you want, eventually they should get your money. Yeah, that's, that's I, I actually enjoyed playing it. I yeah. I bought it. I, I think it it looks beautiful. See, I mean, part of it too is a lot of times I think people don't really appreciate how abstracted things are in development. So, from a yeah. casual observer, they say, "What? That means it's some sort of abstraction or emulation? That's atrocious." When yeah. in reality, it, a native game could be doing something like that in the background, and people have no idea. True, true. Well, well and, and the thing is, you, you frequently you see somewhere in the middle. Like for example, all the Source Engine games from Valve, they have a native OpenGL renderer, but as far as the engine's concerned, it's talking to Direct3D. Mm. They just rebuilt the tiny little pieces of Direct3D they needed using OpenGL, and ironically, it turned out faster than the Windows version. But um, <laughs> that's not emulation, but it, inevitably, someone gets a crash dump. They're like, why is there a Direct3D symbol? Right, right. Like, uh, you know, why is it right. called Direct3D? Yeah. Not an emulator, but you know, it's a good technical engineering decision to say, we have this code that's 10 years old. It doesn't make sense to destabilize it because remember they still ship updates every week on Windows. Mm-hmm. I mean, Half Life One got an update a couple of weeks ago, so I mean, it's not wow. like they ever stop shipping these things on Windows. Um, yeah, they, the poor Alfred at Valve still has a Visual Studio, uh, <laughs> Visual C plus plus six on his desk, so he can ship updates to Half Life One and Counter Strike. Oh, you're it's not kidding, all- are you? You're not joking. Um, that is funny. <laughs> um, that uh, is so hysterical. yeah, I mean. I'm- Valve is an exceptional case in this because most people don't care that much right, about yeah. these games, but they're very, very hardcore about keeping everything running and up to date. Um, but you, they're not going to move it to a newer Visual Studio. It's like you don't want to sta- destabilize it. You want to make small fixes and keep everyone happy instead of yeah. making massive changes. So, um, what was I saying this for? There's oh, so to answer your question, there, you have a whole spectrum. You have people that are like, I don't want to deal with this give me wine or whatever. And you have developers who are like, I don't like, I don't even like dynamically linking with stuff. I'm statically linking everything, you know? <laughs> so you have two different viewpoints. You have, and I don't know which of those is hardcore. I guess the hardcore is the people that statically link everything. But um, these people over here would never, ever ship a wine-based product. It's just that would right. offend their techie soul, you yeah. know? So, so I think you are going to see there are going to be wine or whatever they used or some emulator type thing for some products it's going to happen it's inevitable you think it's, it's more happening. for legacy products oh especially for and the thing is it's not like people are like what the hell system shock 2 is using DOSBox. unacceptable you know i mean so right need it for archaeology's sake if nothing else but um but you can you can see a definite roadmap of how this has happened before because steam for mac shipped before the linux one yeah. by two yeah. years or something like yeah. that yeah. and there are some things on it that are based on wine or cider or sedega or whatever people used on the mac and the vast majority of things are native ports and a couple of things that were based on cider or sedega or whatever they're calling it took their game i'm thinking of x3 in mm. this case okay. took their game and did a native port and they got better performance and they're happier with it and they weren't beholden to another yeah. company to make sure their game kept running yeah so you can see there's a a lot of different ways this shakes out, but I think overall you usually get native ports. Um, so you or think it's part of the stage that we're in right now? Oh, absolutely. This is absolutely evolutionary. Yeah. You're going to see things where uh, people won't need to get products fast, and that's part of the hype of SteamOS is that everyone wants to get this thing up there right now yeah. if they're going to do it. And yeah. that often doesn't lead to a good product. Mm-hmm. But again, you reward the ones that get good products and stick with it and keep making it better. You know, it's, and you, you find out, oh, they just wrote to the, you know, 
dot game name in your home directory. You know, it's like they didn't know they read something about Unix that was written in 1970. They don't know. <laughs> exactly. All but, right. You know, so tell them they go, oh crap, we didn't know we fix it. Next patch, and you know, if only we had a system where you could send updates to everyone that owned the game and distribute to all the people that bought it. Hmm. Hmm. So, all right. Uh, so that's <laughs> our current stage. Should we talk a little bit about uh, the future? I'm. I would love to pick your brain. What, what is the what is near term and long term in your uh, likely going to happen scenario of the future of gaming? Is SteamOS our Steam box is going to work? Are we actually going to see people switch over, or are we just going to kind of maybe move a little bit farther than we are now? But mobile has got it from here on out. Sorry, desktop, you lost your chance. I don't know. Profound, but, sir. <laughs> Drum roll. This is what I do know: is okay. um, you can never tell what's going to happen in the future, and I, I get asked that a lot. It's like, and I'm not, a, I'm not psychic, and I'm wrong about everything. I was in a cab driving to WWDC in like 2005 or something like that, and I was talking to somebody on this phone, waiting uh, on my way to the convention center, yeah. saying Apple will never get rid of the power PC. They've invested way too much in it, oh my God. and I didn't yeah. know that I was driving over to be told that they're switching to Intel. Wow! And so you never I, know what's going to happen. And there's wow. someone pointed out a Slashdot interview. I was like, Valve's never coming to Linux. Just stop talking about it. You know? right. okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been wrong about everything. Yeah. But you can look at things that have happened in the past and understand how that might extrapolate out to the future. The Wii, Ouya, how are you pronouncing that? Ouya, yeah. Ouya, the, the little yeah. $90 console um, survived its Kickstarter and was not a total disaster. I don't know. I don't know. I would call it a success. But I've seen if you walk into Target or Kmart or Walmart or something like that, Ouya uh, like Ouya. Uh, I can never pronounce this. I'm sorry. I can't either. Don't feel bad. Ouya <laughs> like things where it's like this does nothing mm -hmm. but play Android mm -hmm. games. Mm -hmm. But this is not a console you've ever heard of. It's what your aunt would buy you for a birthday gift if your aunt wanted to seem cool but doesn't actually know what a kid likes. You know right, yep. what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. And you look at things like the NVIDIA Shield and right. uh, every Amazon thing they announce every week which is always based on Android. And yeah. it's like there's Everyone's like, oh, no, there's a million Android devices. How do you support them all? This is a great fucking problem to have mm -hmm. because the worst people on the planet to deal with when shipping a video game are Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. Uh -huh. So yeah. why are we so desperate to make sure that everything is an Xbox world or a PlayStation world? Right. What I want is an, an Android world or a Linux world or something like mm -hmm. that where you say – you got to make sure – got to do some sanity checks to make sure it will generally work everywhere. But more or less it works everywhere mm -hmm. and you just – you go, you go, and you buy the unit that you want to play on, and that Wii, that you, Ouya, that thing will fit on a shelf. Oh yeah, like it's it's the size thing. of a like, coffee cup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's tiny as hell. Um, and the Nvidia Shield or a tablet or whatever. They're, I mean, I, I think back. I, I mean, even you look at the PlayStation Four, the thing's gigantic. You yeah. know, it's like where you put that in your house. Right. right? <laughs> um, but the, the point being that SteamOS could be very much that same thing. They've clearly seen the Android model work, and I love the iOS people because they do not understand that they are the minority market and they think that Android is a complete failure. Right, yes, but, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's not. No, you know, it's, surprise. It's huge. Everyone's got an Android phone. It's huge. An iOS yeah. phone, but the vast majority of the planet that has a smartphone has an Android now. Um, so you... It, is that good it, for Linux, general Linux? It, it's, it's, great Andro for, it, it's great for Android. Is it good for just general Linux? I think Android's different enough from Linux that you have to call them separate products, even though they both happen to use something like the Linux kernel. Yeah. But, um, I, but I, I just use that as an example to say that you have this democratization of hardware. Right. Yes. You know, you're is. no longer beholden, and you're no longer beholden to you know 
the ridiculous certification requirements of yeah. Microsoft and Sony, where right. you pay them, you want to make a one-line fix to your program, that'll be $30,000 in six yeah. weeks. It's totally not even an option for most indie developers. Yeah, it's, exactly. And you've yeah. seen it more and more where indie games that are on there are like, I'm just sorry, the bug just has to live because I can't afford to do certification. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, and really, like uh, that's one of the reasons why Braid was kind of such a huge deal, right? Because it was... It was the beginning of this. Wait a minute. This isn't the. This isn't a company that has billions behind them in, in funding. That's all of a sudden launching on the Xbox platform. This is a guy launching on the Xbox well, to platform. To be fair, Braid costs like a quarter of a million dollars to make. So Ouch. just to, to be fair. No, but, all right. That's uh, good perspective. Yeah. yeah. According to John Blow, but um, but there have been cheaper games that have yeah. made it there. Yeah. And, uh, he this he did certainly set a trend. And anyone seen indie game the movie? You could tell that uh, the guys that did Super Meat Boy were flatly starving before they uh. Managed yeah. to ship that thing, yeah. so who knows? Who knows? But um, yeah, I, I follow you. Though. Uh, but what I think you're to, to get back to the original question. After all this backstory, what SteamOS is going to do is basically say you're you're going to have a console like you do, you know, your Xbox or your PlayStation. But it's going to be whatever you want in terms of power and performance. If you want to play, if all you want to play is Angry Birds, you do not need to have like quad video cards in SLI mode in your computer. <laughs> don't pay $1,000 for a game console. You know, pay, yeah, I don't know, you know. 300 I mean, hell, whatever. Yeah, 350 I mean, Maybe 99 one day. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, sure. Well, probably 99 one day. And, yeah. and it, they, they'll probably be very, very clear. You will not be playing Black Ops 2 on this machine. <laughs> right, <yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> Surprise. Or you're going to use streaming. I mean, there's yeah. the streaming capability. Well, streaming, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think streaming is a really cool idea. I don't know yeah. how much use that's going to get in practice because mm. I think we're more and more going to higher resolutions of video, and more Wi-Fi and less cables. And that's going to be yeah. very, very hard to solve. Yes. That being said, very smart people are working on it at Valve. Uh, hmm. Namely, the guy, the SDL guy that they hired. That's one of his main oh, projects. Oh, cool. Is building that. So, oh, that's awesome. Um, but So we'll, we'll see how that goes. That, that's also another option. But, um, but I, I think you're going to find that there's a lot of people that don't want an Xbox because it's big and expensive, and you need a subscription for mm. it, and blah 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 And also... There's this real stigma that's starting to be attached. Like someone's like, "Oh, I went out and bought an Xbox. Oh, that's cool, bro. You're gonna play uh, Halo yeah. with your boys, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. It's not as bad as that, but you yeah. know, it's it's starting. Mm -hmm. My mother would never buy an Xbox, right? And but I handed her an I think, iPad, and she loves the games on. It, I think so, the other you know. thing, I think yeah. the other thing that's really key about what you're saying, uh, I think the the being able to buy the rig that is most appropriate for you, because I can't tell you how many people in my essentially every person in my family who has bought a Wii console or an Xbox console, they play it really seriously for a few weeks, maybe a little bit longer, and then for the most part. It pretty much sits. Maybe they buy one or two other games for it, and it sure. kind of just sits yeah. there, and it doesn't get utilized. But if they could buy a $99 piece of equipment that would play casual games for them that they didn't have to re have a reoccurring subscription for, that maybe could sure. do other things too, which would be nice, like media playback and things like that. Sure, sure. I, I could see how that could be huge, huge, yeah. huge. And if that's Linux-powered, well, then everybody wins, don't they? Sure, sure. And, and I think that's – this is what Valve is gambling on with SteamOS is that – there's there's two concerns they have. That one, they want to make sure that, that well, obviously they want to cut the console money. Who doesn't, you know? Sure, but yeah. also they're running into this problem that every platform they run on, that they ran on past tense, is moving towards these walled garden With app stores. stores. Yeah. Um, and which is funny because I guess Steam is also that. But they're <laughs> they're getting to a point where you, you, Apple wants you to install Steam or whatever through their app store, which you <laughs> right, can't. Right. Who would do that? But once you install something through their app store, they want to get thirty percent of everything you sell on it. Mm -hmm. Everything looks like DLC to them. It looks mm -hmm. like an in-app purchase. So, mm -hmm. and Valve does not want to give them that money. Also, Valve does not want to be told how their Steam should work or act or behave, etc. And 
The problem is Apple's been incredibly badly behaved about this. And you can make arguments in favor of Apple. Like there's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of things that the iOS app store solved. Like you don't have to worry so much about malware theoretically and you don't have to do this and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But they've been really badly behaved people in regards to this. And the problem is that Microsoft looks at everything Apple does in modern times and misunderstands it and picks out the wrong lesson from it. <laughs> Amen to that. So, yeah. so what they will do is get their Windows Store wrong, and you can already see this happening, yep. but they will absolutely make sure it's locked down, yep. that you have to get give them a cut of anything you sell, and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So you can understand where Gabe Newell's concern comes from in this. So oh, yeah. that's why they started working with Linux. Um, and you know they have a whole team of Linux people over there now that are everywhere on the range from you know they have a, uh, a the guy with the picture of Richard Stallman with kissy marks on it and you know see the people are just like I just don't like the business that uh, that we're being forced into and we want to right. make sure we have options like every every range of that spectrum is on is is there working on it and they're all believers in what they're doing and they they're hoping it's going to make the world better and uh, it's going to make the the experience better for consumers and SteamOS is just another extension of that like once you have this once you're freeing yourself from the platform of microsoft and apple then why not let people run it as a console why not break into that market why not destroy mm -hmm. that market if mm -hmm. you can Absolutely. can they destroy it i don't know i think it mm -hmm. will be probably also run i could be wrong i've been wrong about many things before but i think that it's going to go forward i think it's going to do some good i think it's going to you know, open up opportunities for consumers that aren't there right now. What about so. the possibility that it sort of shakes out, like you mentioned earlier, the iOS-Android situation? iOS has a tiny percent of the market, but a lot of surveys show ad developers make more money in that store still. Maybe SteamOS will have a small percent of the market, but the people who buy are going to be more likely to buy because it's a system more tailored to their specific needs. It's possible. The problem we're going to find, though, is the statistics are going to be totally bogus because... Mm. Um, what you're probably going to find, realistically, is people have a thousand plus games in their Steam library that they used to play on Windows that now they can play here. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are going to be like, um, what you'll probably see is people going, we're not getting a lot of new sales, but we're getting suddenly the surge of people playing our games again. Right. And maybe we're going to sell more, but people are going to have a massive back catalog showing up, which isn't good for developers, but it's great for consumers. I mean... Is the Xbox One even compatible with any of the 360 games? PlayStation 4 isn't. I don't. Think I don't think is. so. No. no, I'm not 100 percent on that. But I, 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 don't, so. I yeah, I'm not sure. But I don't. Could think you so. imagine a game I bought in like the mid 2000s will probably work on SteamOS? Right. I love know? that. So, I mean, I'm really I mean, excited about it. You never that. lose your catalog. Whereas there's this planned obsolescence in all games. Yes. But not only that, but you can take your SteamOS and drop it on the hardware you choose, not yeah. the yes. not the one that Valve says, "Okay, you need to use this box." No, yeah. you can put it on whatever you want, yeah. essentially. I like or my desktop. So you have to understand, you're still stuck with closed source software sure. in, in yeah. both the both SteamOS parts of SteamOS right. and some of the games you're playing. Although not all of them, there are GPL games mm -hmm. on Steam right sure. now. Sure. Um, but, That's actually uh, kind of my of my next question. I have two last questions for you, and then I'll, I'll let you go because okay. it's Sunday morning. Uh, okay, yeah. So, as a long time, uh, I, I don't know if you consider yourself an active Linux user, but as at least somebody who's yeah. worked uh, and you know uses Linux all the time and worked on Linux sure. for forever, pretty much. Um, how do you feel about the closed proprietary aspect of essentially what you do work on? How do you reconcile those two things? You know, I I also struggle with those things in media production. Okay. Um, I'm a big believer in open source. I love having an open open source platform and a free operating system. Uh, but I recognize also there's a spot for proprietary software on top of that. But you, I'm wondering where your where your uh, thoughts lie on the matter. Well, I mean, I, I have always been a believer in free software, even before I had an I, 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 before I even knew that term. I was giving out the source code to stupid little things mm. I had written when right. I was a teenager, <laughs> and it's like, and nice. it wasn't because it, it wasn't because I believed in the freedom of it, although I do. 
but it was also like, I wrote this thing, I learned something from it, here's the source code. If you learn something, that is incredible. You know, right. that, that's a huge benefit to everyone. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I stumbled into Linux. I was like, oh, these guys get it. You know, nice. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I mean, Richard Stallman has been doing this since before I was born, but right. you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> I thought I came up with it. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> All good developers do. Totally. <laughs> so, so as an individual, I believe that's important, and that's why I always open source everything I can. And I fight with companies. I don't fight with them. You know, you advocate I, though. <laughs> I, I, I am always encouraging companies I work with to open source their stuff. And some games have been open sourced because I pushed and pushed and pushed, and um, and I actually have one I'm working on right now. We're about to open source. Oh, uh, wow. You'll find soon. Um, cool. But so so I'm always pushing in that direction, but I also believe you really shouldn't be a dick about it. So yeah. um, <clears throat> games are really in many ways disposable. So like if it comes to the point where your word processor doesn't work anymore or your web browser, right. you, you're in a world of shit. Right, but right. if, you know, uh, Unreal be, Tournament 73 right. doesn't work anymore, right. okay. There'll be another game you know, one day. Yeah. Yeah, so so in terms of concessions, it's not a concession I'm comfortable with, but of all the concessions that one has to make, I'm willing to accept that, mm -hmm. and we just keep pushing to get things open source. And you do see these things come over time. Um, I'm not militant about it, but you keep watching, and people get it, yeah. and you keep encouraging them, and they get it. And we saw, you know, John Carmack released the source code to Wolf 3D and Doom and stuff like that under the GPL. Not just here's the source code, but right. here it is yeah. under the GPL. Yeah. And other people took took that hint and they ran with it. Duke Nukem 3D from 3D Realms that is a direct came out under the GPL, and that was a direct. Cause that was directly caused by John Carmack's right. actions. So right, that was point. a positive example. Yeah, but, um, but even still, you look at Unreal Engine. I mean, it's not GPL, but they're like it's in GitHub. It's literally in GitHub. You, if you mm -hmm. pay them for a subscription, they give you a login on their GitHub account, mm -hmm. um, nice. and you you clone from there, and you can push. It's true. That's a huge shift. Back. That's a yeah. ginormous it, shift. It's a massive shift, and if it works for them, you're going to see everyone else do it too. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't know if they changed this, but I only looked at it in the first couple of days, but. GitHub has a, fee a misfeature that it will show you everyone that has access to a repository. And I'm sure that if that's still true, they're going to fix that eventually because there's people you don't know are working on Unreal that probably don't want you to know until they're ready to announce something. Mm. Like if, you know, I don't know, uh, id Software suddenly had an account on there, you'd probably be like, I wonder what they're doing with this. Right. You know, but, um, but, but at the time, a couple of days after they announced that, $20 a month, you get the source code. Mm -hmm. There's 8,000 subscribers to it. Wow. So this is it's a hit, and some of those are curious people. Some of those are AAA companies, and this is their source code access to Unreal. But um, all of those people are getting this in their ear now. They're all seeing that hmm. this is something that can work and be right. beneficial to them and to everyone else too. Yeah. So that um, is exciting. So it's a sea change, and I'm hoping that more positive examples like that will start a real avalanche down yeah. the hills. So. I think we are starting to see that Definitely. happen. Okay, so you kind of teased us a little bit. Is there any projects you can share that you know yeah. about or are working on? Any NDAs <laughs> that you don't care about that much? or anything yeah, like that? Yeah. See, If I tell you things I'm working on and they don't ship, then right. next time I come oh here, my gosh. about Unreal Tournament 3. Right. Like, Why did you tell us about that? So what I'll have to do is I, 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 I sometimes on your Twitter feed, I get a sense that something's coming. Maybe like a goat-based game, a goat simulator. I'll get a sense of something coming. <laughs> we, fi we, we finally shipped Goat Simulator, and Sanctum 2 just shipped too. Um, and we have bug fixes we're still doing to those games. But uh, yeah, Coffee Stain Studios, who did both those games, uh, mm -hmm. 
were incredibly patient. It took a long time to get around to doing those projects and you know, putting the effort they needed into them. And I, I'm hoping it's paying out for them now. But I do keep a Trello board of stuff I'm working on publicly. But oh, okay. it, it's such a tease because it's like, yeah. unannounced project one, unannounced yeah. project two. So. But you can keep watching those. It's crazy. Those well, and their Goat Simulator beta has been running great. Uh, I yeah. especially like Godzilla Goat. <laughs> That's freaking like great. Goat, With the like rocket the pack? I mean... <laughs> Well, I, I have an Australian Shepherd dog, and he's crazy. And I think that someone needs to make a mod that puts like Australian Shepherds right, into right. Yeah, totally. It just be a one-to-one mapping yeah. with the destructive goat. But, I'm all about that. Uh, all right, I know what I'm doing tonight. Then. I do have a very interesting game shipping within the next day, uh, couple of days, or maybe a week or two. So keep an eye out for that. All right, where would be the best place to yeah. watch for that announcement on your Twitter feed? Uh, my Twitter feed, if you can take all the social, social justice warrior crap all I spew, it's uh, okay. at Iculus. You can. Yeah. Okay. We'll fine. have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Also, embedded in the show notes is a talk that you did semi-recently that goes into more detail about the history of Linux gaming. Very good talk. Uh, very enlightening for people who are kind of curious about all of this from not just the technical standpoint, but the historical standpoint, too. So that'll be yes. in the show notes. Link to your Twitter profile. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the Linux Action Show, taking a little bit of time on your Sunday morning. And uh, stay in touch. Let us know as things come up. Maybe we can talk again sometime in the future. And thanks for Great. doing the stuff you do. Yeah, really thanks. Appreciate yeah, that. really. Thanks for the years thanks. of being awesome. Yeah. As a Linux gamer, I really, really appreciate it. So big well, thank I you. Well, I try to be too. awesome, so I'm glad you noticed. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> to be called out. We really appreciate it. All right, right. Have a great rest of your Sunday. So Drool writes in, nah. Lord Drool, as a matter of fact, I watched your review of the Chromebook next week. What? Wow, that's... By that's... removing Chrome OS, you remove the command line tools, which enable you to set up a legacy OS as a default for boot, huh. and also to cut to the boot wait time down to one second. Yeah, there is a little bit of a delay. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, these require writing to the normally write-protected core BIOS first, hmm. admittedly a hairy procedure. Most purchases of this machine will have the 2-gigabyte model, as the 4-gigabyte model is exclusive to the U.S., so I have the 2-gigabyte okay. model, too. Okay. okay. It goes on to say, most Linux distros boot via ISO Linux, which produces an insufficient memory error to install error on the Chromebook, hmm. which apparently is a bug. You also did not mention that the C720P has a more responsive trackpad than the C720. I did enjoy your comments, however, about the Arch installation on the machine from the future. Lord Drool. That's cool. I love that you told Time me. paradox accomplished. He actually, I he did actually, mention those things yeah, because he said yeah. I didn't mention those yep, things. Yep. Flippity floppity flu. Time Woo. paradox. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Thanks for tuning into the retrospective. We'll be back with a massive scale episode next weekend. Where it's too late to already tell you this, but we've actually we were live on a regular Sunday time. We do the show Sundays, 10 a.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. We were live recording our scale stuff, but we had this out in the meantime because we're limited staff while this needed to ship. Hopefully you enjoyed this though, because a lot of these submissions came from you guys, and I really appreciate that. There's a lot of ways you can interact with this show. Number one's gotta be the subreddit. It's big. I love it. Linux Action Show at Reddit.com. I go there many times a day. Noah goes there many times a day. If you want to put something in front of our faces, that's a great spot. Also, the email. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. That's my... That's what I make when I do that. Slash contact. And then choose Linux Action Show from the drop down. Send us in your emails. We're on top of those bad mamma jammas more than ever now. Uh, so it's a great time to get your content in front of our faces that way as well. Last but not least, though. Seriously, I just mentioned at the top, the live stream, we interact with the chat room between segments, uh, we're taking title suggestions, we're doing real-time follow-ups, and it's sort of like a group gathering of some of our favorite people every single Sunday, and you can get in on that. It's a really cool experience. We've got the chat room embedded over the jblive.tv room, and also you can just get all our IRC info there, and then it's also, I think, in the show notes, and you don't have to even use the embedded chat room if you don't want, and there's also ways to stream it without Flash. You just got to get in there and try it. 
jblive.tv on Sundays. All right, well, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. We'll see you right back here next Sunday. Now, yeah, I, yeah. we should. I got a new idea. A new idea for the uh, for the Kyra app picks. And by the way, you can find all of Kyra's app picks by going to last.ting.com and then clicking on their blog link. But I think this one is a way to finally block all of these calls that I get from the ladies who just want to hear my voice. Oh yeah, let's find totally. out. Here we go. No, you cannot speak to Kira Longfield. No, I don't need duck cleaning. I'm Kyra, and this Ting's app of the week. Uh oh. Hold on, Matt. Hold on, Firefox crash. The app was so so no, awesome. No, it just, it's, like, completely... it's not Kyra's fault. It's totally <laughs> Firefox crashing on me. Hold on, let's play it again. But, go, but, but, Kyra, go. Nope. No, you cannot speak to Kira Longfield. No, I don't need duck cleaning. I'm Kyra, and this thing's app of the week. That is frozen, streaming wow. from a torrent file, high definition. Wow. Yeah. Have you seen this? this wow. These guys are gonna get. These guys are gonna get the. I mean, I just can't wow. imagine. So this is uh, this is popcorn at a time. Oh yeah, I've, I've heard. I've heard. You heard them. about yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So this is. These are all torrent files. These are not. These are. I don't have these downloaded or oh anything my like that. God. And when you click on it, you get different health status. And if the health's excellent, you can generally just click watch now, and it just starts buffering and streaming. Dude, it from torrent. No hard drive, no problem. Right. I mean, right. You just basically you just need uh, something to buffer with. Uh, and so they came out and said, "Oh, we're shutting down," but they never took down the code off the web. And in fact, a new update just came out like the other day. And look right here on this one, I can switch between 720p or 1080p. <laughs> the movie industry is great. <laughs>